Um, hi. So, yeah, every time a talk like this comes up, Josh is like, hey, Ness, you want to do something where you might cry on stage? And I'm always like, no. But he's like, do it. And I'm like, oh, God. Okay, here we are. Here we are again. Okay, but uh, my name's Ness, and um, I get to do the announcements a lot of times with my husband up here, which is hilarious and also very brave of Josh. Every time he throws me up there, I'm like, yeah wow, you just really have a lot of trust or something, or not, I don't know what, but I think it's hilarious. Anyways, um, a little bit about me. Um, I grew up in, well, a couple of places, but with my parents mostly in Westchester, and um, my parents are two ex-hippies. They would say they're ex-hippies because they got jobs. That's what they would say. They would say, we're hippies that became, we went to the corporate world, you know, but my mom never really left the hippie lifestyle behind. For most of my life, I she was a vegetarian or a vegan or back and forth, and then my sister jumped on the boat. She was too, and if you know me, that is not my lifestyle choice. I really, my husband's like the best baker in the world, and I mean the best baker. So like eggs, milk, all that, that's like my friend. Like triple chocolate layer cake, that's my weekly, that's, that's, that's not even like a treat. That's just dinner. I mean all the time. I love burgers and hot dogs. I love for the 4th of July for the burgers and hot dogs. I love the prime rib at um, Christmas because that's what my dad makes just to torture my mother. I learned this torturing of vegans and vegetarians from my dad especially. He would be like, we're going to have prime rib, Cindy. And my mom would be like, I don't, I only eat green things. And my dad would be like, yeah, this is blood. You know, it'd be like terrible. And so I learned this thing where I was like, oh, it's funny to torture the vegans. It's fun. It's a fun time. So like on her birthday, I would make her a cake just full of dairy and be like, happy birthday. And she'd be like, I don't eat that. And I'd be like, sucker, joke's on you. I'll eat it. Like that's how it went. For And to show my, my ultimate love, the, the love that I have so much of um, meats of all kinds, I have to tell you a story. And uh, honestly, you're not going to believe this. You won't. You'll say, she's embellishing. But guess what? I have 15 witnesses, and that could, like, stand up in a court of law. So whatever you believe about what I'm about to tell you, you're going to have to trust me because my husband will stand. He will stand on the witness stand for real and be like, uh, uh, like oh, take an oath that I did this. So some of you may know the wonderful Wings Place um, Quaker Steak and how they used to have, yeah, yeah, that's right. They used to have that all-you-can-eat Wings Night that's now defunct because of things like this. Well, um, we went, my husband and I went, and, you know, like 15 other people, and for all-you-can-eat Wings. And my personal record, I've eaten there a lot, but my, now again, you're going to go, there's no way. You're five six, and I'm telling you, no, this is true. Okay, uh, my personal record is 63 wings. Now I'm not. I know. Now, I always I thought that was extreme, but my husband's personal record is 80. So I just think to me, we're, we're, we like the, that's that's what that's a thing we like to eat. Okay, so yes, that's my life. Now the other part about my so this torturing the vegans part of my day to day adventure. You know. I just liked that. It was just a funny, I always liked, every Sunday morning I go to my mom's house and every Sunday, or Sunday morning, Sunday night, um, we have dinner there and she would make her green whatnot and I would eat my not green thing. And I do like vegetables, don't get me wrong. Okay, um, but then you may know something else about me, the uh, 
the fact that a couple of months ago I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Now, okay, this is a tricky, there's a conundrum happening here because one of the first things, if you don't know anything about multiple sclerosis, uh, neither did I. In fact, when they said that, I was like, say what now? What is that word that you just said to me? I have no idea what you're talking about. So it's um, essentially a brain disease where uh, you get these um, lesions on your brain and then when they get inflamed, you lose like mobility or vision, whatever. You know, great. So the first thing that my doctor said to me was, "Well, we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of success when my patients eat an anti-inflammatory diet." And I was like, "Yeah, I'll get on with that." Does that mean I'm not gonna like end up in a wheelchair? Shoot, sign me up, whatever it takes. Because I'm pretty, believe it or not, I'm a really good rule follower. Like I'm a really good patient. I, nobody ever believes that. My boss at work is like, "You're not. That's a lie." And I was like, "If it's a good rule, I'm gonna follow it. You know, like I'll decide if it's a good rule. But like for the most part, I'm gonna follow the rules." So. This seemed like a good rule. I was like, yeah, whatever it takes, doc, whatever. Tell me what it is. And they're like, okay, well, anti-inflammatory foods. Inflammatory foods are things like meat. And I was like, okay, meat. That seems like a bad, uh, I, okay. And he was like, and dairy. And I was like, dairy, that's like ice cream, though. We're talking about just pizza as a whole right now. And then he said, and gluten. And I was like, what you just said to me was that I have to become a vegan but also no gluten, which is actually prison, I think. I was like, you just gave me a, a terrible vegan sentence. And I said, wait, what you're saying is like, for how long? And then he's like, well, like, it's kind of forever because like, you can't cure the disease. And I was like, oh. Like in my mind, I was like, what you, I can't do vegan gluten free. I was just instantly, the first thought in my mind was I should not have roasted my mom my entire life. This is what I deserve. I was literally like, you roasted those vegans for years and now look what you get. And I was like, oh. And actually that's the first thing my mom said to me too. She was like, oh Ness, what up now? I guess you're happy I know how to make tofu. I was like, yeah, I guess. I was like just still sweating like, huh, how am I gonna, I mean literally it was terrible. Yeah, so that's, that's where I'm at. And the reason I bring that up is this, why was my first inclination, you totally deserve that. You messed up here and here's God giving you the eternal vegan sentence, ha ha. Like, can you believe that that was my first instinct? Like, I, but it's, I don't think that that's that weird. I think the process, the thought process where we're like, oh, I totally deserve that. That's something that happens and I think we all think that. Um, so Job, that's the book we're gonna talk about. Um, some of you may not have read it. Some of you may not have even heard of it. So I'm going to give you a quick dumbed-down version of Job because that question I just asked, the one where, why did I think that? Why was the first thing in my head I must have done something to screw up the world, the vegan world, for the vegan sentence to be dropped upon my lap like this, right? Well, Job kind of talks about this a little bit. So what is Job? Let's talk about it. Dumbed down version of Job is this. We meet the man Job, and Job is perfect. He says himself he has no flaw. He said if he could stand in front of God, he'd look like gold to God, which I'm like, who could say that? Like, that's a bold, bold Job. But he really was. I mean, in this book, he's perfect. He has the perfect amount of sons and daughters. He has land as far as the eye can see. He's got some friends. He's got um, livestock that outnumber the hills. Like, it's 
crazy. Job has it all. He's perfect. And he worships God. And he does it really well. He does all the, the right sacrifices to God. He even does those sacrifices for his kids just in case his kids messed up and they forgot. So he's like righteous, like a good dude. You know, like the Pope plus Mother Teresa plus like whoever else you like, that, that guy. He's like that guy. So, but here's the thing. So we see Job and there he is. But then we get, we get to see part of the story that Job never sees. And it's this powwow that God and Satan have in heaven. And essentially, Satan's hanging out with God, which seems strange, and we'll get to that. Um, and they say, and basically, Satan throws this accusation at God, and he says, you know what, I think Job only worships you because you've made his life, like, super easy. And if you didn't, he wouldn't like you anymore. And God says, test him. That's awkward. That's a terrible, like, it was, it's pretty extreme to me. So he says, test him. So Satan goes and messes up Job's life. And I mean, like, not just like, oop, you got poison ivy on your face kind of mess up. I mean, like, oh, your, your cattle, dead. Your land, gone. Your kids, they're dead too. And your body, almost destroyed to the point where it's not worth living. And your friends all say, you messed up, Job. And Job's like, but I didn't. And they're like, but you did. Because God doesn't do this unless you messed up. Right? So, but Job knows he's completely innocent. Finally, he flips out, calls upon God and says, what? Over and over again. Hey, God, why'd you do this? What's going on? And um, God finally comes down from heaven, puts Job in his place with a, with a big speech, and then gives Job back his land and new kids. Book of Job. That's it. I'm like, that's, that's a strange book because there's a lot of things in it that I'm, I, it's confusing. And when you read the book of Job wrong, it gets weird, like super weird. Because you can read the book of Job in a lot of different ways. And God gets the, the bad end of the stick a little bit in, in the book of Job. Now, to be fair, he does hang out with Satan, like they're friends. He does um, wager using a man's life. He does wreck Job's life for no reason. And he says that. He says, Job hasn't done anything wrong, but you can mess with him. That seems strange. He also, in the end, he gives Job a big, I am God and you are not speech, which I have used a million times, but just using the word mom, I am mom and you are not. And that doesn't feel very good. At the end of that speech, you feel like pretty awesome, but at the end, you're like, it's pretty empty threats right there. I mean, I just, I'm not going to do anything. But, um, and then gives Job everything back with no explanation. That's what God seems to be doing in Job. So we can look at this book and say, all right, this book is about how God ruins men's lives because he thinks it's a game, or there's something else happening, or there's more going on. And we have to dig a little deeper to know what's going on, otherwise we're going to miss it. Because Job's asking massive, massive questions in this book. Same questions you and I ask all the time. And if we don't look at these questions, we're going to miss it. If we don't dig in this book, we're going to miss the truth. We're just going to see that God seems like a big fat bully who hangs out with Satan. That's weird. Okay. So first things first, we need to remember that the book of Job is in the wisdom book genre, 
of the Bible. Now remember, way back when in January when we talked about the Bible and how it was composed and all the cool things, we talked about the Bible being a library of books, right? And it's a whole bunch of little books in a big library called the Bible. And they're all written by different people at different times with different intentions to a people that was ancient. And we call them ancient Near Eastern people because they were ancient and lived in the Near East. Clear. Okay. And these books were written to humans that lived back then. Can we get stuff out of them? Oh, yeah, we can. That's, it's a blessing that we can. But it was written to them. So if we can understand why these ancient people, how they would read it, what they're gleaning from it, how they understand it, it's going to help open our eyes to so many little hidden nuggets of truth. So we're going to talk about that. But the wisdom book genre that this book is written in is different from the poetic books or historical books or any of those kind of books. It's a story that's trying to tell you a deeper thing about God. Now you might say, well, all the books are telling us deeper things about God, but this is typically written um, almost like a lesson. So the whole book is engineered to, to reveal something really important. And so we have to understand that. Now, typically wisdom books start with a character that's actually real. Like Job probably was a very real person and he probably actually was a really rich person, kind of awesome, but there's no way he was perfect because, as we all know, no one is perfect. And there's no way he had all the money he's, that it was said because otherwise he'd have all the money in the Near East, which is a little bit impossible. Um, so there's a lot of hyperbole you know, excessive detail happening to tell the story. So if we look at it and we're like, wow, Job has not one flaw? Wow, I guess he's the only guy who lived without a flaw. Like, that's not the point. The point is, is he, we're, he's telling a story as if this person was. And this, understanding this genre, understanding this storytelling method is going to help us a lot. Because when I first read the book of Job, I said, well, God killed Job's kids, so... I don't really like God too much. You know, I was like, that's 10 kids. He just flattened underneath that house. That's terrible. Like, to me, I just couldn't get past it. But once I learned that this was a story method that somebody was revealing a deeper meaning using history, it was helpful for me to kind of go, oh, okay, they're telling a story. So if you can walk with me like this, it's, it's a little bit like the Good Samaritan the story Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan who helps the person on the side of the road. Um, the, Jesus never says, there was this Good Samaritan and his name was Mark, and I know him, and here's his phone number. He said there was. Now, it, we wouldn't say that there's maybe actually this one person that Jesus is referring to. What the point is, though, is he's telling a story that reveals a deeper truth, right? So if we can look at Job the same way, Jesus is, when Jesus is talking about the Good Samaritan, it's going to help us grasp the deeper stuff. So, for instance, in this genre, you're going to help, it's going to help you understand this whole conversation between God and Satan, because that's strange, I would say. Think about this. God's in heaven, and Satan comes to him like it's just fine. Like, he can walk into heaven anytime he wants and then give a report on who he's messing with. I mean, where else in the Bible does this happen? It doesn't. The point is, is that something else is occurring here. So this is their conversation. This is Satan and God talking in heaven. It says this. This is Job 1.6. If you got a Bible, you can turn there. Um, it says, One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, 
And Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where did you come from? As if he didn't know. Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth, there is no one on earth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is strange to me because what it seems like is Satan just gets to walk through the door like, what, how you doing? And God's like, oh, you want to screw with someone? I got a guy that is awesome. And Satan's like, yeah, let, that's awesome. Let's do that. Like, it seems to me like there's a flaw here. But what ancient people would see is a story they have seen over and over again. You see, scholars believe that the way ancient people saw heaven, the way they saw God, because ancient people, you know, gods, all kinds of gods were normal to them. So the way they would see God is kind of like, the closest I can imagine is like Zeus, you know, how he would be up in his court and he would have all the gods come up to him and then Zeus would be in charge, but all these other little gods would say like, I'm the one in charge of fertility and I'm the one in charge of the river and all of that stuff. And Zeus would be like, go hit this guy with a lightning bolt and they'd be like, okay, you know, like, and that's how it would go. But, and this is actually something that even the Psalms talks about. It's in Psalm 82, I have it up, I have a slide for that one. It says, God presides in the great assembly he renders, renders judgment among the gods. I mean, this isn't just in Job. This concept of what ancient people thought, see there's Zeus with Athena and all of his friends. Um, like that's, that's the typical way they thought. So the way the book of Job starts with God in heaven and then Satan, who's also known as the accuser or the spy, and then the angels who are the messengers all coming to him just like this. This would have been such a typical motif for these ancient people. It would have been so normal for them. They would have been like, totally have seen this, totally understand it. So to us, we're like, Satan, how'd you get up there? But to them, they're like, yeah, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. So, so here he goes. Um, and there's another, there's another clue that this is a, a story that maybe is a little different is because God says, tell me what's going on. Now, we all know that God is omniscient. He knows everything. And yet, he asks Satan, what's up down there on earth? What's going on? Like, that's not the way we normally think of it. But this is the way those people would think of it with, with that idea of the heavenly court, the royal court, right? Okay. So, here we go. This is what's happening. Um, Satan and God make this deal over Job's destiny. And uh, the genre, the wisdom genre, opens wide up for us to see. And we can see that there are a lot of stories actually just like Job out there. In ancient Near Eastern culture, before the book of Job was written, there's like 10 that, there's, that I can point to um, that are exactly just like Job. They all do the exact same thing. How it works is this. There's a guy... Um, his life gets screwed up by a god. The guy goes, oh, crud, I better make this right. I'm so sorry, god. And the god says, all right, go through some trials and get this magical fleece from beyond the valley. And the guy goes, okay, and then comes back and does it. And the god's like, now you shall have your kingdom back. And he's like, thank you, god. That's how it always goes, over and over and over again. So when this book opens up in Job, people are like, uh, I've heard this story before. I know how this goes. It's like every romantic comedy ever. Meet cute, get screwed up, end up together in the end. Like, that's it. 
Like, we were all like, seen this story before. Thank you, every romantic comedy ever. Like, thank you, Hallmark Channel. You know, like, we know how it goes. And the ancient people would have started Job and said, I know how this ends. Except they don't, because Job has a twist. You see, ancient people lived by this thought. They had this idea. It was called a symbiotic relationship. Ancient people thought this. I have to please the gods. I give them sacrifices for food. I give them temples for a house. And then they give me whatever powers the gods had it. And it rain, fertility, protection, whatever. The gods had it, and they would say, you give me my sacrifices, I'll give this to you. We've got a good exchange happening here. If you're a good little guy, I'll be a good little god to you, and vice versa. But if you screw up, well, then I'm going to end your world. <laughs> and people are like, ah. So they were very careful to do the right thing. That's why Job's like, I'll make sacrifices on behalf of my kids, because I don't want anything weird to happen to them. You know, they were, he was very, very thoughtful. So the gods were fickle, easily angered, and people expected the gods to do this stuff. That's why they were immediately like, I'm so sorry. But you'll see in the story of Job, he doesn't do that. Something happens. Something is strange because Job doesn't apologize. In fact, he says, I didn't do one thing wrong. Can you imagine standing up before God and being like, not one thing. You can't, I didn't do one. Like, I... I'm, I have been counting all the ways I've done things wrong on this stage, and I'm up to five, like, since I've been up here. So, uh, I mean, like, seriously, I'm like, I can't, uh, Job, to say that, that's incredible. That's incredible. So, but he, he says, I know how this system works. I do good things. You give me good things, God. You're giving me bad things, and I'm perfect. You're in the wrong. And the story takes a twist. Because every other story, it doesn't work that way. Every other story, the man immediately apologizes, but Job doesn't. And something is crashing down among the ears of these ancient people. A system that has worked their entire life. They're, since the beginning of time, in fact, you do good things, you get good things. You do bad things, you get bad things. And that's their system. So when Job gets bad things, well, that system is crashing. Um, and that's why I think, you know, when I, and I think this thing, this weird system still exists within some of us because I really honestly think, um, why was my first inclination, I deserve this eternal vegan sentence? Why was that? What a weird thing for me to immediately be like, totally deserve that. You know, like, I think that's so interesting. Um, it's because I think I live by that same principle somewhere deep down in my guts. Somewhere in my mind, I think, I do good things, I get good things, right? And I do bad things, and I get real bad things. And here's the deal. When Job says, you're wrong, God, everyone's like, hey, 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 hey. His friends are all like, hey, no, 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 no. You messed up. And Job's like, no, I didn't. Didn't. Now, here's the deal. We can think this system is crazy all day long. We can think this idea that Job is undoing, actually, the book of Job is undoing, is, is so ancient and, and idiotic. We just call it karma now, honestly. <laughs> you know? That's, that's the thing. Like, if you had to name it, I mean, no, very few of us would be like, I totally 100% believe in karma. I mean, maybe some of us do, honestly. Um, 
it feels it feels like a like a thing that seems very real to us though or it should be we think but um i think the thing is the deeper question underneath this karma thing is well why do bad things happen to such good people i mean i think i think this is there's like a twist that happens because we're like somewhere deep in our guts we do believe that we should get good things if we're a good person so when bad things happen to great people that's why we get all angsty that's why something else happens to us and that's why there's a best i mean there's a best selling book why do bad things happen to good people that's like a legit book and there's a that's a reason why people have a really hard diet of cancer God, because my angel grandmother who never did a thing wrong to anybody died of cancer too early you know or got hit by a car her mom got hit by a car my angel grandmother's angel mother got hit by a car and that was hard for her to believe in god after that you know like why do terrible things happen to awesome people we don't know um but here's the i have good news and bad news about job job isn't trying to tell you the reason it's not going to tell you why bad things happen to good people and if we treat it like a book that's like a self-help book that's going to reveal that to us we're going to be really confused and it's going to we're going to be like actually freaked out a little bit because it's not going to reveal that to us unfortunately um but the good news is is that there's a question underneath the question that i think it does grapple with and we're going to be unpacking the book of job for the next 2 weeks but i want to kind of like stand in this little circle of this question for a second um and i want to ask uh when we ask the question why do bad things happen to good people what does it actually reveal about our thought process What does that actually reveal about us? I think we all have this lingering karma principle in our minds. I think we do think um God should give good things to people who love him. I think we really like karma. I mean, when we're driving in a car and somebody like cuts us off on the highway and then they get stuck behind like the really slow truck and can't make their exit and they're all like freaking out behind the re- wheel you're like instant karma sucker or you're like watching a sh- like a a, chief, a TV show or a movie and like the bad guy like for instance in Aladdin the ultimate twist when you're like Jafar wants ultimate power but then ends up a genie in a lamp like shoved in there and you're like ah Jafar you stink you totally deserve this spoiler hope you have that movie came out in 1993 so if you haven't seen that movie that's your own problem <laughs> like don't act don't act like it's a new movie like it's not so okay but he does and you're like oh yeah this pump bad guy karma yeah we want it We want goodness to prevail. We want that. And we want And you know, here's the thing. What it comes down to is honestly, good stuff, the good stuff we do and the bad stuff we do, there is our we do have to deal with that in some way or the other. Don't get me wrong. Like karma or like effects of our <laughs> our good stuff and our bad stuff is real in some way. Not karma because that seems like the world's in charge of it, but um but we do want to have control is what it comes down to. Karma means control. Karma means if I try hard enough, I can get some good stuff. Like if I work really hard, if I keep striving, if I keep racking up the points and and helping people, loving people, being a good person, like that should have some effect on whether or not terrible things happen to me. Um we think if I can just please God, 
then maybe my life will look okay. We think, you know, maybe, I think we work hard at it because we're like, I really want my kids to be safe, you know? I really, I really want to not get laid off from my job. I really want to not be depressed or like get an incurable brain disease or whatever your like worst nightmare fear is, you know, like that kind of stuff. Like you really think if I can do enough good stuff, there's no way that stuff will happen to me. Um, because we think we've got an exchange happening here. Like God's going to give me good stuff or at the very least comfort, health, even just happiness, right? Even just that. Um, and of course, we would never say this out loud. Like, this isn't something where I'm like, I'm earning all the points. You should see my score with God. I am killing this game. We would never even, sometimes I don't even think we think about it, but I think it sneaks out into our language. I think whether this is a, something that sticks in the back of our head or something we actually, like, follow through on, I really feel like it's, it sneaks out in our language because the, <laughs> the, the phrase I like to see, whenever this comes out of my mouth, I'm like, ooh, there it is. It's, it's not fair. It's not fair that this happened to me. It's not fair that my husband got laid off. It's not fair that my kids are sick. It's not fair. Whenever that comes out of my mouth, I'm like, according to what principle? According to what? Where, who, who made these rules? Who, who's fair for what? Fair f- according to what? And I'm like, oh, Ness, there it is. There it is, sneaking into your language. What should you have if it's not fair? What should you deserve? What do you deserve? It's not fair. What should you have? A perfect life? Perfect health. No flaw, no bump in the road? Oh, perfect body forever. Until you lay peacefully dreaming at the age of 99 and a half and, and die in your sleep? Is that enough for you? Like, seriously, this is me. This is, this is a conversation. This is me and God being like, I'm, this is not fair. I don't want this. And God being like, what do you want? What's good enough? And I was like, I don't know. You know, like, eh, kind of the 99 and a half thing. And, you know, like for everyone I love too. And like, you know what I mean? Like, that's what we think. Um, and I've done my share of yelling, it's not fair. Um, and Job does it too. Oh, Job. Job has some zingers. Just some real. I got one. This is a good one. He says this. Um, I got this on this on the screen. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. Ugh, that's so real. That's like God just kicking you to the curb and being like, good luck in the storm, sucker. I hope you brought a parachute. And you're like, no, I didn't. And then he's like, oh, well. You know, like, you're like, oh. Like, but that's how it feels. And I'm like, it's not fair that I'm in this windstorm and you don't care about me. That's how, when I, that sneaks into my language in the back of my head where I'm like, where's God? He doesn't care. I know I've got an issue, and I've realized something. The misunderstanding, this belief, this exchange where I think I deserve something, and maybe you don't think this. Maybe you're like a really awesome Christian. But I really think in the nasty parts of my life, in the quiet parts, I really think, I don't deserve this poison ivy, God. (laughs) Why every June do I get poison ivy? And literally every June. But you know, here's the thing. I can't get a steroid shot this year because it interferes with my medication. And it's the worst. So now it's just going to go on for three months. Anyways, I believe that this exchange, this idea of I don't deserve this, 
leads us to one of two places. It leads us to hating ourselves because we just weren't good enough and now God is punishing. Or hating God because we are and he screwed up. He's failing us. Ultimately, this leads us to a place where we think God is untrustworthy. We think, I can't draw near to you. See, if he's supposed to pay up after we're really nice people and he fails on his end of the bargain, well, then he just can't be trusted. If we're waiting to watch the hammer drop on us every single time we screw up in some way, God becomes super scary. There's this awesome quote by C.S. Lewis. He wrote this book, A Grief Observed, after his wife died. Um, and it's, it was, he's, he was sad. So he's dealing with a lot of the same things. It's not fair. And he says this. I have it on the screen. C.S. Lewis said, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. Not, so there's no God at all. I believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God at all. But, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. This is what God is really like. He's scary. He's got the hammer. He's the beast in the cave. You don't want to wake up because if you do, oh, something coming for you. This belief about God's character is a super huge problem, obviously, but it's, it lives in the deep, dark part of our psyche. And I think that thinking that God is untrustworthy puts us in a spot where we're constantly pushing him away. And why wouldn't we? When things get rough in our lives, why would we draw near to the one with the hammer? <laughs> why would we draw near to the one that's trying to hurt us? If we really think that this belief that God is punishing, always hurting, and our good better outweigh our bad, like these divine tipping scales, we're always going to be nervous around him. And we're never going to be able to relax. If we don't root this belief out of our lives and out of our minds, when tough things happen, we will always run from God. If you find yourself running every single time something hard happens, I, I bet this is in there. I bet this is asleep in the back of your head. You must have done something. Um, we start to believe that life's unfair. God's let us down. He's in the wrong, and man, maybe he's even just a little bit cruel. So I want you to ponder this. Is God a place where you can rest? I want you to think about it. Can you just be yourself with him in your failure, in your fear, in your worst screw-ups, in your doubt? Is he a place that you go to openly and honestly? When he sees you in that weak place, is he angry with you? Is he shaking his head? Is he pointing his finger? What's he doing? I think about this a lot as I deal with, you know, things in my life. I think about the fear in the back of my mind and that thing. Did God do this? Did God do this to me? Did God hurt me? Is God trying to hurt me? You know, I think about that. We've all dealt with stuff. This isn't like, I mean, I think all of us have a little bit of Job in us, right? A little bit. Maybe you haven't. Um, but so, a lot of us have. And I think we've all asked these same questions. When I read Job, I'm like, oh, yeah, there you are, Job. You and I are friends. Um, I think 
if we do pin it on God, this bad stuff, we think, are God and Satan just in a divine powwow messing with my life? <laughs> um, does he even care? Does he see me? These are some really important questions. They're life-altering. We need to see this for what it is. It's a flawed belief system. Now, here's the deal. I think there's an antidote to this whole darn thing. I've been thinking about it. Actually, I wrote this talk in my brain in a seat over there a couple of like weeks ago because I was thinking about all this stuff like, you know, like, wh wh what's the answer? So I think this stuff about you, God, I'm afraid of you half the time. Or when I like wake up, I'm like, no, 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 that was so stupid. Oh, my gosh, what am I thinking? But like, what's the answer? What is the, qu what is the answer to my question? The antidote, I think, to life isn't fair, God isn't safe, God isn't good, God is scary, is grace. When we remember grace, everything changes. Instead of tiptoeing around God, trying not to wake the beast, we remember that instead we've been coated, slathered, <laughs> covered, and with a hammer, grace. The way God operates isn't with a hammer, it's with divine grace, love. That's love and kindness. That's forgiveness and hope, and that's a gift. We want karma. We want control, but we need grace. Karma means we're in control, but grace means God is in control, but in the best and most beautiful way. Karma means we're constantly trying to weigh ourselves. Am I good enough? Did I do good enough? Is God mad at me? Is he not mad at me? Um, grace is a love we didn't earn and a hope we'll never pay for. It's the opposite of karma. It's freedom from the system. It's freedom from trying so hard to win God's approval. Grace means um, your future is secure. Karma means you got to earn it. And grace is just a gift, and it's just from Jesus. It's just kindness. It's a gift he gives you freely, no matter if you're like super good, like Job, kind of good, a little bit good, mostly bad, or torture vegans. He will give it to you. He will give you grace. Jesus loves you, conquered death and evil to give it to you, and he waits for you to know him. So, is God trustworthy if you're afraid of it? What does that mean to you? Do you mean, will things that are good happen to you all the time, that you'll die in your bed at 99 and a half in your sleep dreaming about heaven? Will you be taken up in a golden chariot? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that's, that's what it is. I don't, you might, you know. But I don't think good things are going to happen to you all the time. I don't think that's ever been promised, guys. I think if you look at Jesus' very best friends, that's not their lives. There's something better, do I say, than just good things all the time. What they had was Jesus. What they had was grace. What they had was his presence. And what they had was in the midst of the worst things, they had a God that would never leave. 
They had a God that would be near them in the very hard things. When the things that seemed crushing were so crushing, Jesus was so close. We get to be near God because of grace. It's his gift as well. This presence where he gets to come up close to us in the hardest stuff, in our failings and fears, and our desperate need of forgiveness, God comes right up close and gives it to us. I feel like when I think about grace, I think about like a nest that God has made. He, he made it all for us to just curl up inside and rest. Because the outside can be very scary and it can feel very uncomfortable. But God has given us this place to curl up and he calls it grace. <clears throat> so we just have the exchange wrong. We don't give God good things to win his kindness. He just gives his kindness freely. He's not a beast. He's not someone to fear. So you got to remember this as you, as you think about this. And the band can come up because I always forget to get them to come up. And then Kurt gives me the eye like. Um, so um, you got to remember this about grace is that Jesus' cross was grace. But Jesus' life was grace. Every wrecked, broken, messed up person he encountered with no one near, Jesus lathered grace upon them. Every eye contact with the most hated person in, <laughs> in Jerusalem or wherever he was at the very moment, every touch he gave to every leprous person was grace. And the cross was grace. Everything that held us captive, sin and darkness and death, Jesus conquered to give us grace. And then when he was resurrected, he gave us the future, which is just grace. Guys, we get it all from what he did, from what he does. He's not a monster in a cave. And when I get angry and I start stomping my feet and I'm like, this isn't fair. I, I'm like, ah, I'm treating him like the monster. When he's just waiting and saying, get in this nest I've made you and rest here. That is grace. I can stop fighting so hard. I can stop trying to earn it so much. I can stop stomping my foot. I get to land in the place that he's made. I get to relax with him, and I get to trust that. That's what God wants. We get to trust in the grace that God gives and rest in him. Okay, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing some songs. Yeah. God, thank you so much that the truth of you isn't the fact that you are waiting for us to mess up. The truth of you isn't that you sit in heaven trying to come up with plots to hurt. The truth of you is that you did every single thing to draw us near and you wait. You sit and you wait like a good father saying, come back to me. Come see me. Come see where I've built you this place of rest. I've given everything to you that you need. Don't treat me like I'm angry. Treat me like I'm loving. And you are, God. 
I ask that our eyes would be turned to you that way, that we'd root out the darkness, those things that we pin on you, they're not yours to bear. I'm sorry that I do that. Um, Bless this church, bless this worship, and let us come near you. In your name.